Friendshupiter Networks presents Sagas of the Blank Page, a live play podcast featuring the Visor role-playing system. Let me bring up my my word file. Word, word, word. All right, and hi everyone, and welcome back to our podcast. I'm Crenshaw, I'm your GM and host, and today we are going to be telling a story in the weird and wild west of the 1870s, taking inspiration from the Deadlands published game system by Pinnacle Entertainment, and today I have a bunch of phenomenal role players with me, and we're going to be telling a tale that takes place out in the wilds of Nevada. And um, I'd just like to take a moment now to introduce them. And I just want to say thank you guys so much for coming. It is an honor to have you again at my virtual table since we're all being smart and practicing social Zooming, if you will. <laughs> but again, thank you so much for coming. And I'm really excited for today's story. As, as I am lucky enough again, my beautiful and lovely wife is joining us. Sandra Crenshaw, welcome. And uh, please tell me a little bit about your, uh, who you're playing today and, uh, and take it away. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I, I'm Sandy Crenshaw and I'm going to be playing Margaret Trumbauer and everybody calls her Maggie. Uh, she's been a widow for about two years now and she is a cattle rancher up, uh, up Northwest of Eli, Nevada. So I, and I will pass it over to Gary. Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Fikaski. I'll be playing Professor Henry W. Hawkins. He is more of a professor of the mystionic, the unknown, the forbidden, uh, a relic hunter, if you will, seeking out the strange things that are happening in the West. Uh, he's been on his way to uh, Eli, Nevada, and I'll pass it along to Joanna. I am Joanna Walmsley. I am playing Sarah Barr. She's 17. She has been in Eli, Nevada for about a year now. She's working at the local church, uh, assisting her aunt, who also is sort of assisting at the local church. So she is currently ministering to the uh, local population for mostly drunkards and prostitutes, trying to coax them into the seats at at this church bringing them to the proper religion uh she is a little bit disenchanted with that and would like a little bit of adventure and find out what's outside of these four walls and uh that leaves graham okay so i'm graham i'm playing uh john Nicholson, who's a doctor who's just recently graduated from new york school of medicine uh, john loves his uh, his medical technology so, and, and I think that means he didn't actually do well in his degree. Uh, he's now got a, a job, uh, been offered a job with, uh, with the Pinkerton Agency, so he's traveling across country to meet up with them. Great. Fantastic. So there you go. And as always, well, I don't know about always, but as always, we are using the Visor role-playing system, but this week specifically we're using VisorCon, um, a convention-inspired version of the Visor role-playing system, and we'll be using a set of percentile dice, 
and a deck of standard playing cards with the jokers included. And at the bottom of the character sheet, you will see what those cards do. You deal yourself three cards at the beginning of the game. And anytime you use one, you may replace that card. Um, and you can really you only use one card per scene um, unless amazing circumstances and I become a benevolent GM and not a wicked, evil, cruel, evil, wicked, cruel one. So with that said, let us begin. And again, guys, thank you so much for joining. Um, you get home from a long week uh, of work and drop into your sofa or your sofa chair like Gary has done and spin up your DVR and spin on to the last episode of the podcast and I don't know, television series that was also made from the podcast on the Crunch Jupiter Networks <laughs> and catch the very last seconds of a commercial. Are you tired of wearing a mask that doesn't smell as nice as the potpourri your grandmother wore? That's right, kids. We now offer Sniffin' Safe, the potpourri-scented face mask for social distancing. Not available in stores. Pick them up now. And the screen slowly turns black and fades out. And then we fade up and we see Crunch Jupiter Networks presents in a very expensive graphic. A large set of letters fade in that says Weird West 1870. And it's in this weird, strange, twisted wood. And as the letters get closer to us and the camera starts flying toward the letters, we see the wood slowly twist and tighten itself. And we hear the sounds of wood creaking and screaming as we fly through the letters. And there's this darkness that envelops us. And then all of a sudden we hear the sound of hoof prints at the very bottom of the screen fading in from the black is a set of white letters that says somewhere in the middle of the West, 1870s. And we then see the camera fade in and it is near dusk and there is a stagecoach that is traveling at high speed across this wide desert plain that's almost looks like uh, a salt lake in the distance. And as the camera is coming up to the coach, we can see that the rider is, is whipping the horse faster and faster and looking over his shoulder as the carriage is bouncing and tearing toward the lights of the city in the distance. And as the camera comes down, Next to the carriage, we see on the side of it, you know, it says like Dillman and Torrance Carriage Company. And we come to the window and we see that there's a fabric and the windows are down and the camera pushes through the thin fabric and into the interior. And this is the first time that we see Dr. Jack Middleton sound asleep sitting in the carriage because this has been like four days of this for him. And then the ride has taken the exhaustion of him worrying about all of his precious instrumentation that has precariously been rigged onto the roof of this speeding carriage. And he's just passed out from deep exhaustion. And one of the bumps wakes him up as the camera comes in. And sharing the interior of this carriage is a couple and they're they're each knees facing each other their knees are touching and their hands are grasped together and they're 
stiffly trying to avoid being bumped with the carriage. And, and when the doctor awakens, the woman suddenly turns to her husband and goes, Albert, I, I, I think he's awake again. And we see the doctor sitting there waking from his dream. So, um, so, so John wakes up and he's been, and he's been sitting pretty much in the, in the same clothes for, um, for a few days. And I, I guess it's a coach that we, we stop overnight, we, we sleep, we get back on. Um, he, um, Correct. There's, he, he sort of looks anxiously at one of the crates and he kind of reaches out the window and, and, and touches them. But of course, there's, there's nothing he can do. I mean, he's trying to judge from the sounds whether, whether anything's broken in there. And then he, uh, he sort of settles down and watches the, uh, the city approaching. Okay. Uh, um, as you reach up and grab the strap, um, you notice that it's not very tight anymore. Okay. I don't know quite what I'd do about that. <laughs> uh, so it, it will shout out to the, um, to the stage co- coach driver and um, well, he'll shout, driver, driver. He leans over down. And you can see that he's, he's flustered, he's sweating, he's, he's kind of slid over to the side looking back at you and goes, what you want? We're almost there. Just, just relax. Okay. And I, I guess at, at that, Jack will sort of sit tensely back and wait until he gets into the city. Okay. Are you going to hold on to that strap that's, that you feel is loose or are you going to just let it, just bring your hands inside? Sure. He'll, he'll do the best he can to, to stop it rattling about. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we have this scene then of the carriage careening off in the distance with a hand holding a strap. And you can see that like two of the road cases on top are like precariously bouncing. And and that strap holding down is the only thing that's really holding it there. The camera lets the stagecoach disappear in the distance and the camera stays where it is for just a moment. And then as the glow of the carriage disappears into the lights of the city in the distance, all of a sudden around the camera is this yelping and howling as these skeletal horses with riders on them, with feathers on them, pass by the camera at full speed, chasing after the carriage. And the camera then fades to black. The yelping of the skeletal horses and the riders kind of yelping their war cry leads us with the same audio into a fade in of Maggie's ranch house. There's a number of Native Americans that are packing up a bunch of goods that they've just traded with Maggie and her family and they are yelping and jumping on the horses and celebrating that they now have bountiful sacks of food tied to their horses. So I catch the whoever is in charge, the the eldest, and his name is First to Dance. Is his name First to Dance? So f- First to Dance, I uh, really appreciate the trade that we have had, and I look forward to trading further. Make sure that that you uh, get herbs in the water, uh, in the running water, before you uh, chop them up and put them in your meals. Yes, Maggie. It is great again to be trading with you. We are pleased that you are most kind to us, and also thank you very much for all of your kindness. 
I'm happy to be friends with you. May your crops be bountiful and may all the gods shine their smiling faces upon you. I just step back and, and uh, watch the scenery as they are all packing up and making sure that uh, everything's secure on their horses. There's four of them, and with First to Dance is his brother, Born of Rain, and two of them could almost be twins, except Born of Rain is a, like a smaller, a smaller, younger version uh, of First to Dance, and Born of Rain, he very much is a trickster, and so as they're riding off, he starts juggling with a couple of the apples that he got from you and is, you know, singing a joyous song as he's riding off. And as he looks back, he throws one of the three apples, one of the three apples back to you and helps and they ride off up into the hills. I try and catch it. Give me a dexterity roll. The first roll of the game. And Dex- what is your dexterity? I have a really good dexterity. I have a 68. Okay. Dexterity. And I rolled a 39 out of 68. Okay. That's, pr- that's pretty average. You don't have to run after it at full speed, but you catch it pretty easily. He excites even more at you catching it and kicks his horse faster, riding ahead of uh, first to dance as they disappear up the path. Oh, they're some of my favorite traders. I say as I turn around and take a bite of the apple. So you have a guy who runs the cattle ranch for you, correct? Uh, yes. His name is Seth Beauregard. Seth. Okay. Seth and some of the other hands are packing up what the Indians brought um, of some, you know, some furs and some things that they've traded with others, like some silverware, some other things for the kitchen. You know, there's this interesting mix of pieces that were not just Indian that are mixed in. One of the things that caught your eye was a kind of a small piece of um, hand-carved sandstone that had a almost Coco Pelli-like character kind of carved into it. And it just kind of caught your eye bitter as Barry, one of the other Indians that just left. It was one of the things that he had traded with and, and he didn't want to trade it, but, but you, uh, you convinced him. I offered him enough to trade it. <laughs> yes, yes. Or I offered did. him the right thing to trade it. Maybe a bit of both. Okay. Yeah. So as we kind of see this property that you're on, the camera pulls back because the sunset is just, it's that same kind of just at dusk. So the sun is starting to set. And as the camera pulls back and we kind of pull back away from your ranch and we see your house kind of fading in the distance, we see like cattle way off in the distance kind of roaming. And then just way off at the very edge of the camera shot, we can see this ridge line of mountains in the distance. And there's a bunch of what looks like at first are kind of like fireflies sparkling in this mist that's kind of rolling up and kind of slowly cresting over the top of the mountain range in the distance as the camera slowly turns and pans and looks further west and then comes further down into the town of Eli and we come down to the church and as we come down to the church the doors open and a woman a very 
kind of Rubenesque woman is carrying uh, a drunkard on both arms. She's got a thin guy who's very ragged looking, but under her other arm, she has this kind of stronger built, maybe Chinese, and she's uh, a Chinese gentleman, and she's coming through the doors of the church, and she's saying, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. Oh, hi. Sarah, where have you been? I'm sorry, Sister Edith. I was, uh, I was, I was, I was. I have no time for this. I have no time for this. Would you just, would you take him? Of of course. She tosses the bigger of the two on you for obvious reasons. (laughs) Obvious that she wants to crush me. (laughs) Take care of him. I have much, I have much to do. He reeks of opium. It just is in every fiber of his being. Uh, okay. Are, are, are we housing him overnight, Sister Edith? Or, or am I helping him home? I don't think he has a home. And if he does, I wouldn't take him there. Of course we're going to keep him here overnight. He can't, listen, he can't even see straight. I, I'm, I'm never... Sometimes I just need to be certain... <laughs> Who's staying and who isn't? I, I'll, I'll find him a bed and I'll get him cleaned up. Child, you are exasperating. I'm sorry, Sister Edith. I'll, I'll, I'll try to do better. God willing. God willing. So she disappears through a door and in, deeper into the rectory. I'm going to take this large gentleman to... Uh, to I'm, I'm sure we have like a little... Uh, like, like we'll say a wash closet, so just a bucket, some the harsh, harsh soap, and I'll just start getting him cleaned up as best I can. Uh, I'll leave him for a minute and get some clean clothes. I'm sure we had to, what I was folding a minute ago was folding up things that had been washed and dried over the course of my morning. So, uh, do a little trade out of what he's wearing and I'll try not to be too embarrassed when I, when I get him down, down to his skivvies. You start to undress him and he's mumbling to himself and it sounds like it could be Mandarin, but it sounds like he's, he's speaking in some, in some strange tongue and his eyes are kind of rolled back and he, he's almost swaying as if like he's on an ocean as you're trying to keep him steady. And so every time you get his upper part kind of steadied, so you're kind of, it's kind of like dancing with a a rag doll. (laughs) There it is. You're dancing with a rag doll to try to keep him up. And all of a sudden, just as you are about to finish getting him undressed, he instantly freezes and opens his eyes and looks at you. All of a sudden, the room darkens for just a second. Like the room inside this church that was lit with a set of, oil lamps the oil lamps seem to like flicker and the size of them dims and his his eyes that were that are black dots all of a sudden iris up and fill his entire eyes and his mouth opens and he goes and he kind of leans forward toward you as as if there's strings on the back of his head but his hands are stiff to the sides and he leans forward closer to you and because of the distance in size it's almost like he's coming right down on you 
And the closer he gets to you, he goes, It is here. It has come through the mist. I'll throw my hands up, kind of keep him from falling on me. And, um, and, and what's here? What's coming through the mist? Are you okay? <laughs> Do you have luck or a land on your character sheet? I have a blank space with Great. written <laughs> Let, Let's talk about this. Sandy's character, Gary's character, and I'm going to probably just assume probably also Graham's character, are aware of what we call the supernatural, the other side of the veil. So if you were, if your character is familiar with it, you might have an land skill because you might have some experience with it. If you're more mundane and have not been exposed, then you would have a luck score. I would say, well, I have been here a year and I have been ministering to people like this gentleman mm -hmm. in that time. So I'm certain this is just another example of, it's hard to say because they're all drunk or high or whatever. <laughs> How much am I really believing? Uh, I would say if I have a luck score, it's going to be low. Okay. Would you like the a land skill, which means you're kind of sensitive to the weirdness? A little bit, yeah. Okay. All right. So why don't you pick a number for your land, and then let's, as you touch him, the minute that your skin touches his, there's this wave, and I'd like to see how you react to that wave by making an land roll based on what stat you set. Okay. And I'm rolling below what I set, correct? Or the number you set, below or it. Okay. And what, what stat did you set it at? I, I'm going, as I said, I'm going to say it's low. And if 50 is sort of average, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm going with like 30. Okay, 30. that makes sense. And I rolled 38. Oh. So. <laughs> Do you have any influence cards that could help you make this roll? I hadn't drawn. Because I, I, uh, I think I do have, I'm, I'm wearing a locket. Okay. Uh, which has, it does have a picture of my mother in it. Okay. I, I am trying to escape my righteous father in Ohio, but I do love my mother, and she is righteous as well in the way that I want to be. Okay. So, okay, I, I have a question about these cards. Yeah. So, um, when you draw cards to associate with these items, is it random? You can put them any way you want. Okay. And then, but is it a, but I guess it's, a, is it a random draw? So if I have three things, I draw three cards and yep. then I associate it. Okay. Gotcha. And then is everyone playing with their own deck? Generally, we would be sitting around a table together and we would be playing off one communal, non-social distant deck. Did Graham just teleport? <laughs> So, <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Is he okay? 
Yeah, yeah. It's, I think his phone was next to the microphone and he got a text message or something. Okay. <laughs> Either that or he turned into a Dalek when we weren't looking. Okay, cool. Yeah, so your mother's locket would allow you as kind of like a focal object to modify the role that you made to be a land sensitive. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of energizing a item on your equipment list other than, hey, I just have a locket. Now my locket helps me tell a story a little bit. Right. Cool. Yeah. So I, so I now have a card associated with that item. But in this case, I don't think it'll help me because it's, it's, it's a six. Okay. Um, but I imagine if that's a die modifier, that wouldn't be enough to get it under 30. Right. So you would need it. I think you need an eight. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what happens is as you're, as you're stopping him from falling, and he's moving slowly toward you, mm-hmm. he's falling slowly toward you, you reach up and stop it. As soon as you touch him, you feel this, this cold chill, and your necklace actually comes, levitates off your chest, uh, and you can feel it pull up on your blouse, under your blouse, like pulling up toward him, and then all of a sudden he goes 100% limp, and all his weight falls into you, and you need to make a strength roll to not be under him. All right. Or a dex roll to get out from under him. Strength roll or a dex roll, your choice. Oh, excellent. I'm going to go with dex because that's much better. I feel, now that I have a better idea of how Sister Edith feels about me, my dexterity is high because she throws things at me. <laughs> so I have it at about 75 Okay. And I, and I rolled under that. I have a 57. All right. As he's falling towards you, you kind of grab him and fall with him. It would be Aikido, but who knows what Aikido is at this point. Um, you kind of go with him, and the weight of the two of you work together, and you actually roll him over because he's mostly oh. naked, and he drops into the bathtub, splashing the water out of the bathtub all over you and all over the floor and all under the door. And you just hear this, Sarah, from outside the door. And we cut to black. (laughs) The camera fades up and we're seeing now a heavily armored, steam-powered stagecoach. It's actually almost like a luxury liner. It's got a lower floor that's the first half of it. The back half is this little glass-encased seating area, and inside is a little tiny bar, and there's probably about eight or nine people all inside this carriage that's coming across Nevada and heading toward Eli. And as the camera comes down, we push in to the back in that semicircle seating area, and we see Dr. Henry Hawkins sitting there. In his hand is this old piece of paper, this crumbling paper. On the piece of paper, there is a bunch of notes scribbled in some fading ink, and there is a drawing of a pile of dead bodies and this horrible massacre of soldiers from, from the war. It's this kind of ink drawing and there's a what looks like a kind of octopus 
like jellyfish thing that is rising out of the pile of the bodies and there are notes that are pointing at a drawing with like little side notes like thicker tentacles at the bottom and thinner spindly tentacles near the top and as you look at this drawing one of the other passengers who's holding a drink you notice him standing looking over your shoulder looking down and he goes that's something you don't see every day excuse me sir if you wouldn't mind backing up this is quite quite valuable well i'll be what what kind of weird drawing is that you got there I'm afraid if I were to explain it to you, it would only drive you mad. (laughs) (laughs) Two more of these and I'm already mad. I'll tell you what. Why don't you try one of these? And he turns to his side and he has his case that says, you know, Hawkins. Very elaborate, of course. Very um, Art Deco-y style. Very elaborate. But it's his name and it's faded over the years. Tons of scratches, a couple knife marks, a couple <laughs> questionable bullet holes possibly. And he opens it up and it's, it's very reminiscent of what you would have somebody on the side of a street, little tchotchkes to buy. But here it's little vials of, you know, this herb, this piece of tree bark, this. And they're all meticulously labeled. And he, he sprinkles just a little bit of something into his drink. And he says, why don't you go sit down and relax now? I have work to do. Oh, man, I've heard of some of this. I like <laughs> it. <laughs> he's pulled out his journal as well from there. And he begins to start transcribing as best he can into this um it's very akin to the, you know, Last Crusade journal that we see in that wonderful movie franchise to be named somewhere else. But it's got bits of paper, pieces of lizard skin. You know, there are things kind of just kind of mashed and, and, and horse glued into the paper and dried. And here on this new section, there's like, what is this? What is draw me? And it's got Nevada all over it as he's bringing in all these notes and trying to reference previous encounters in other locations the camera watches the gentleman with the drink kind of stumble down the stairs and he stops and the camera pushes in and he holds the glass up like next to the lantern and you know everything's you know moving so he's kind of burping and holding onto the wall and the camera shot looks through the liquid and you can see almost like gold schlager crystals dancing inside of it and you see him kind of raise an eye and he goes well, bottoms up, and he tosses the drink. And as the camera whip pans back to you, we see the journal, and we push into the journal, and we see that the page that you were looking at, you have made a copy of the drawing inside the book with more information that you've gathered. It looks like there's some other notes. But on the opposite page is a hand-drawn map, and the map is of Ruby Mountains written on it. Gotcha. And there's an arrow pointing at it from the town of Eli, and you've circled Eli. And the camera then kind of fades outside of the glass carriage, and we see, again, that sunset slowly fading in the distance. And our camera shot now sees those sparkly firelights north and to the east of us as the carriage rides away from us in the distance. Again, the camera stops in the road. The carriage disappears towards the lights of Eli. And just after a few minutes, there is the sound of bone on bone. 
and a skeletal dog runs by the camera, kind of yelping, chasing after the stagecoach into the distance. And okay. then we fade to black. 